Media. This is Coming Out Stories. It's a podcast about one of the most important conversations of your life. I'm Emma Goswell. Time now to hear from Assad. He grew up in a British Pakistani Muslim household and feared the worst when coming out as gay to his parents. So much so, he packed a bag and got a friend to wait outside their house in his car in case he got thrown out of home. Yeah, I think I was about six or seven and I really, really was interested, the word interested in my primary school teacher. And I didn't really know why, I didn't know what it was, but I was very drawn to two primary school teachers, actually. I won't say their names. Um, <laughs> so like a sort of school kid crush. Yeah, I didn't really know what it was. But being six and seven at the time, it was very weird and new. But I definitely knew I was different because I wasn't sort of interested in the girls like a lot of my other male friends were. So I didn't really know what it was, couldn't put any words to it, but just knew, oh, that older teacher's interesting. And I was very drawn to them. Um, But it wasn't until about 10 or 11 years old, just going into secondary school, I was like, oh, that's what it is. You know, I found the language, I found the words gay, started to really understand sexuality a little bit more at that age and realised, oh, that interest actually was something sexual and based on attraction. And so it's like 11 or 12, probably by the time I thought... Yeah, I think I'm gay. Yeah, I am gay, yeah. Where are we geographically then? Where was your school? Uh, Manchester uh, in Chorlton. Ah. Uh, yeah, you can narrow it down. Um, there's only two or three primary schools in Chorlton. Um, <laughs> Is it the one the Bee Gees went to? It's not, no. It's not. So <laughs> it's the it. other one. All right. It's the other one. That's No, we can't claim that one. <laughs> so that's quite young, I'd, I, I'm guessing. Did you have any other kids in your school that were identifying as gay that early? Not that I know of. And I think that was a, the troubling thing for me is I never really talked to, about it to anybody. And this was pre-internet, so I am a bit older. So when I was that age, there wasn't the internet around. Um, it was only until I got into secondary school that the internet started becoming the thing that it is. So there was no real resources or people I could talk to um, to try and even work through it or understand it or have the language or the access to to the things we have access to now. So it was just really odd and strange. I just knew I was different. And innately, weirdly, I knew it wasn't something I could speak about because you started to hear things like gay, like fag, and people insulting it and using it in a derogatory sense even from an early age, and you'd hear adults using that sort of language as well. Adults as well in your school? Yeah, like, you know, parents of kids. You'd hear it on the street. You'd hear it football matches. I'm, big, I'm a big fan of football. So you'd hear that, that those slurs used quite commonly. So maybe innately, maybe, you know, consciously from society, the signals that I was getting, I just knew I couldn't talk about this or explore this publicly at all. Yeah, so it's something you inter- internalised for quite a long time, would you say? Definitely. Um, you know, I for sure can say that I was homophobic you know I hated myself when I was younger I didn't really understand why why this was happening to me I had no role models to look out to I didn't have access to elder gay or elder LGBTQI plus people mm-hmm. so for me it was just really lonely um, I was quite religious at the time and I struggled yeah and I genuinely did hate myself I was homophobic for a very long time did you express that at all? Did you say homophobic things? Yeah, yeah. It's sort of the, oh, oh that's so gay. Uh, and I'd join in because I didn't want to be the only person in the group to not say it and therefore be outed. I tried to not actively be homophobic, but when it would come up in, in sort of school with our discussions, oh, that's, oh, that's really gay, isn't it? Oh, that fag, you know. I never joined in with the more aggressive slurs, but I also never called it out. 
Mm. I never really intervened or stopped it either, which I look back and I'm you know, horrified at that. But for me, that was survival. When I was 12, 13, I couldn't be outed. That would be the worst thing for me. And the sad thing is, like, you're in a big, vibrant city, literally a few miles from your front door was a thriving gay scene. But I guess when you're a teenager, when you're a bit young, you've got no access to that, have you? Yeah, and for me, uh, being in a, a British, Pakistani, Muslim household, uh, my dad was self-employed, so a lot of time I'd be at work. So I'd be going to see my dad in the evenings or the weekends. So even when I had the opportunity to get out of the house... I always wanted to go to sort of Canal Street area, but was always so paranoid because my dad's work wasn't that far away and he sort of knows quite a few people in the city. So yeah, having one of the most vibrant gay neighbourhoods in the UK at the time, particularly throughout the 90s, made it sort of even worse. I was like, it's so close and it's so accessible. But also, you know, the bar culture wasn't for me. I grew up Muslim. I didn't drink that. The the portrayal of like the, the gay scene and the bar scene just didn't appeal to me. I wasn't mm. really into drugs or alcohol. And that seemed to be the only representation I would get through mainstream media. It's all about drinking. It's all about partying. Um, and when you grow up Muslim and you grow up in a, as a child of immigrants, as I did, that's a very alien lifestyle when you're 12 or 13, growing up into your teen years. So it just never really appealed to me. But I also knew, oh, there are people like me there. I wish I could just see what it's like and speak to people. So that was a shame and, and quite sad when you think about it. Mm, so growing up in a Muslim household, was homosexuality ever anything that was brought up? Never. So mm. when you're the child of immigrants, particularly Pakistani immigrants, particularly um, with um, an Islamic Muslim background, we don't talk about sex anyway. Mm. So it's not sex is something you just do not discuss with your parents, whether it's heterosexual sex, homosexual sex. It's just a no-no. So even things like on TV when there'd be like kissing scenes or romantic scenes, and my dad would be like, turn over, turn over. Um, and it would get really weird. So we were, we were never a sexual family in that sense. You know, we wouldn't discuss anything sexual. So that's the sort of base level I was working on. Okay, with. and you've got brothers and sisters. Uh, yeah, an older brother and an older sister. Ironically, there was a year, I think, on Big Breakfast, and I think it was Lily Savage used to host Big Breakfast for a year, or she, they, they were on um, a segment of the show. Mm. So they were lying on a bed in full drag, and my dad used to love that, and uh, it was really funny. Um, and I thought, oh, maybe that could be a way in, but got too scared, really, because was, I was about 11, 12 years old, I think, at the time. So I just remember that being a, an interesting moment where there was this thing that was associated with being gay, you know, drag, and my dad was fine with it. So when was the time that you did verbalise it or do anything about it? I was quite late, actually. I was 22. So I'd left the nest, I left Manchester after 18 years, and I moved to London for university. And then I started to explore my sexuality. You know, the apps had kind of kicked in by then. I'd gone to a few bars. Um, so I was sort of exploring it and being a bit more comfortable with it myself and trying to understand myself a little bit more. Because you've got to admit it to yourself first, right? Yeah, and like I said, I was homophobic when I was in my teens. You know, I did struggle with who I was. I was very religious, so I used to, you know, pray the gay away. That saying literally was true. Did you really? Yeah. So you went to the mosque and did I this? Did, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was quite devout at one point. You know, Friday prayers at school, um, obviously Ramadan, we'd go to the mosque every day, every evening. You know, I was I was deeply religious and it's something that I could never really reconcile with, even though, you know, the teachings of the Quran don't really reference homosexuality. The struggle, I think, in a lot of uh, Muslim discussions around homosexuality is that 
the Quran is often brought in or misinterpreted. And then you have the cultural layer on top of that. And I think people outside don't realize just how important that cultural layer is. Mm. You know, you talk about India as it was then before Pakistan was created as a as a country. India was one of the most sex positive societies in the world. You know, oh, look at the Kama Sutra. Exactly, you know, um, and yeah. colonialism had that effect, you know. It imposed Western ideals of sexuality and body image and colorism that's emerged from that as well. There's a lot of cultural and historical issues that are also associated, not just religious. So I think there's quite a few misconceptions when it comes to you know, looking at the debates around the Parkfield School with the curriculum of teaching LGBTQI issues and it being a, an Islamic problem. It's a problem from the Muslim community. Yes, they are leading that, but that's more widespread in society and you have to deal with it from a cultural and a historical perspective. So when you went to the mosque then to pray, did you feel welcome or were you very conscious that you were only welcome because you were hiding your sexuality? I always felt welcome. Mosques are, from the outside, they seem to be this mysterious place. But effectively, they're just community centers. Mm. So you'd go in, you'd have children playing around, you'd have play areas, you'd have food. It, it's always been a welcoming space. But for me, I was always hiding it. And therefore, in the back of my mind, I always thought, well, if they actually knew what I really was and who I really am, they wouldn't accept me. So for many years, I again, I hid it. I found it difficult to reconcile my faith and my sexuality for so many years. Um, and back then, there weren't the organizations that exist now. There weren't things like Iman, who are a great group who is queer and gay Muslims in the UK. And that's a great support and resource. But I never had that. I never really had access to that when I was a kid. So I never really had that role model or that person to talk to or you know, community to, to feel engaged or part of. So I'm guessing it must have been in your 20s before you came out or even yeah. got a partner. So that's over 10 years of sort of internalising it, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And that, that takes a toll. That's damaging. That mm. really is. I got into a relationship. Is this uh, at university then? Uh, just after university. So, you know, I was kind of non-committal in my first years of coming out. I wanted to enjoy it. <laughs> and I also thought, in my mind, when I was finished with university, I, I was likely to move back to Manchester possibly join the family business and I would likely have an arranged marriage to a mm. woman. Was that expected? Yes, absolutely. My sister had that, my brother had that, my parents met through an arranged marriage and that's just part of the culture. Mm. And I was convinced that I was going to do that. I had readied myself for a life of being married to a woman and How do you do that? You struggle, um, you give up a little bit of hope. You give up a part of yourself. You tr you truly do. You realize how much of a a sacrifice and a burden you're going to have to carry for the rest of your life. And to to reconcile that with who you are as a person. I'm a very outgoing person, very outspoken. But then to sort of hide a huge part of yourself really takes a toll on confidence, on on the way you present yourself outwardly to society and to your family. If that had ever happened, it would have been terribly unfair to the woman that I'd be marrying. Wouldn't it? Obviously, um, it would have been a horrible thing to do. It's so, so dishonest to the family, to friends, to her, to myself. It would have been terrible, but it's a thing that many people do. Many Muslims still do that. So what happened after university? You didn't move back to Manchester. I didn't. Uh, I got a job, which was great. And I made sure I got a job in London because I thought the more distance I can put between myself and the family, 
I'll find some way to avoid getting married. Mm. Oh, I'm starting to build a career in London. Let me try and get a house in London and then I'm a bit more settled. So that takes about a million years, in, doesn't it? Well, that was, a, that was a smart move by myself. <laughs> I said to my dad, I was like, you know what? Let me get settled and get a house. And he was like, oh, that's very sensible. I said, you're a really sensible boy. <laughs> really, I'm knowing it would take about 25, 30 years before I get anywhere near that. <laughs> but I met somebody, I got into a relationship broke up with that person and actually that breaking up with that person was the the thing that led me to coming out i'd hit rock bottom at that point i really had this person i'd fell madly in love with and they gave me an ultimatum they said come out to your family and tell them about us or leave wow and i thought that was really horrible Mm. to to have trusted and loved someone that much as i did and then have them say you need to make this choice or i'm going Uh, that was that was the thing I decided to leave that relationship because I felt the trust was broken but in the process I had hit rock bottom you know my I'd been diagnosed with depression early that year and I was struggling to find a way out and so I decided to come out to my brother first and I did that via text message okay not the best idea at all because um, you don't get to read sort of facial expression or understand their point of view and how they've reacted. But part um, of you must have wanted that in a way, yes. to have that distance. I couldn't do it at the time, but with hindsight, I wish I had not have done it. Mm. I wish I had been able to see their reaction, to try and understand their point of view. Also, the wait, waiting for a reply back from a text message Ooh. like that. This is before WhatsApp, where you, before it, you could see the red receipts. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's bad it? enough if you're asking someone what they want for their tea and they don't reply in half an hour. That causes me so much anxiety oh. in itself. Um, <laughs> so for me, it, it was a silly thing to do looking back, but it was the only way I could do it. And even then, the discussion started off, you know, I, I can't have this arranged marriage because I knew it was coming up. And I just couldn't even say that I was gay to him. Had your parents already started getting women getting women in as it were and do you know, do you know and finding a suitor trying not to brag but yeah. at my brother's wedding so i was 18 or 19 mm. uh, a lot of the aunties so the aunties in pakistani communities are like the the queen networkers mm. so they've got the vision they're like oh he's 18 now so he's gonna he's very smart he's going off to university so they'd already started having conversations with my parents saying well, well, we can introduce my daughter to him at the wedding. So I'd get aunties coming up to me, introducing their daughters to me at my brother's wedding. Oh, my God. And then, like, other weddings that you'd go to. This is a very big, normal thing in Pakistani and Indian weddings. You've had the aunties just queen networkers getting in there, conversations started, introducing them to their daughters at the time and just seeing if there was any kind of clicking or any sort of sparks um, so I, I did have quite a few, actually, at the time. And I think a lot of it is around family and family values. So, you know, we were a very highly respected family in the community. And that was always a good sign. So in, in uh, Pakistani and Indian communities, that is very much the thing. You know, you look for good family values and good alignment of family values. You were hot property, basically. That's it, yeah. Thanks to my mum and dad and their family values. <laughs> I was like, yeah, this one's a good catch, apparently. So, um, yeah. But you avoided it. So how what, how was your brother's reaction then? Not great. It wasn't. Um, very confused. I present as very outwardly masculine. I'm totally into football. I love, I've always been a sports person. So uh, the stereotype of society at that point in terms of what does a gay man look like, mm. I was very much opposed to that. I was sort of big. I was fat. I loved sports. Uh, I loved R&B and hip hop music. I was pretty much exactly like my brother yeah. i was just gay 
So for him, it was really hard to reconcile the stereotype and the representation of what a gay man would look like in society versus who I was. And he couldn't really reconcile that initially. So his initial response, his immediate response was bad. Did he just deny it? No, he he said I felt sick, is what he said. But I that feel, was a reply on text? That was a reply via SMS. <gasps> My brother and I were incredibly close. I talked two, three times a day, that close, best friends. And so that was really hard to take. I just remember, yeah, being in tears on the edge of the bed with a phone in my hand, sort of waiting for that next response. Uh, I said, you know why? I'm not a different person. I'm exactly the same person who I was yesterday and two years ago. Mm. I'm still your younger brother. I've always been there for you. Why can't you be there for me? And we got to a place where he was supportive, but we never really talked about it. And his big piece of advice was, we can't tell mom and dad. That was the key thing, because it would break them. They're so religious, they're so involved in the Muslim community, and it just was something that you couldn't do. Not right now. We'll find the right time, which was the excuse for the next sort of four or five years. So you waited your time then? I did. um, I think because I wanted to heal that relationship with my brother first. Mm. That was really important to me. And that was years in the making? That was, yeah. I mean, we stayed, we grew up fairly poor. We stayed in the same bedroom for the first 14 years of my life, Mm. you know, in a tiny bedroom with two single beds, you know, we talked every single night. We were incredibly close. Sometimes I felt like the older brother. Mm. Uh, it's that sort of brotherly love and friendship that we had. But I waited until I was about 24 or 25. And I'd come back from, from London for the weekend. And I had it in my mind to tell my dad for a while. Because the arranged marriage talk was really ramping up. 25, it's a really good age. Mm. It's a good age for marriage and getting a few offers coming in and i just felt this was the time i was becoming a bit more comfortable in myself i wasn't dating anyone at the time but i'd been through two or three relationships and i realized that's what i want i want to be with somebody and i want my family to be a part of that you know family in pakistani culture is essential it's so ingrained into the fabric of who you are particularly as immigrant children or the children of immigrants as we were And I wanted that in a partner. I wanted that in somebody that I wanted to love. And I wanted my family to be a part of that. So it came to this one weekend on the Saturday night. I thought, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. It's quite late. I had a bag packed, ready to go. There's a bag just hiding behind my bed. And I text my friend. I said, hey, can you just come around to my house and just park outside? And he replied like, what? I said, just park outside. I might need you. I might not. And he didn't know you were gay. He didn't know. Right. I hadn't come out to anyone. I wanted to do it with my family first. So he drove around and was there waiting <laughs> in the car around the corner, had my bag packed. You were expecting the worst, I said. You have to. You, you absolutely have to because, and that's the horrible thing about coming out for many of us is, is twofold for me and I think for many others. Before you come out, you assume the worst in the people that you love. Mm. And that's really hard. People that you grew up who love you are supposed to love you unconditionally, and you think that they're going to turn their back on you completely. That's horrible to feel that way, to have the people that you love around you to completely disconnect from you. And then the second part of that is you then feel bad for thinking that of them, for Mm. thinking so bad of your parents, of your friends, that they would just do that. 
So I think it's this double this double blow really of you mm. trying to deal with this thing yourself, number one, and then you think and assume the worst in other people and then that reflects on yourself as well. But you have to you have to prepare for the worst. I think for a lot of us we rely so much on that family structure that if that is taken away from us, a lot of us don't have anything else. Mm. So your mates parked down the driveway somewhere, down the street, down the you've street. got your bag packed. What happened? So I text my dad, it's late, everyone else had gone to bed. And I know that my mum and dad, they stay up late to watch ZTV, so Pakistani dramas. They love mm. catching up on their serial drama shows in the evenings. So it's about 11, half 11, and I send him a message, and I can hear a ping from downstairs. So he's got the message. I said, um, can you come upstairs? I want to have a chat. I'm assuming he'll be really annoyed because he's probably halfway through his romantic drama on ZTV, yeah. thinking, oh, bloody, what does he want now? I got a message saying, yep, coming up. And then you hear the stairs, that slow walk, slow creaking up the stairs. It was probably about 20 seconds, to be honest. And it felt like 20 minutes just waiting Mm. for him to come into the room. And I sat on the edge of the bed, comes in very cheery, as my dad always does, big smile on his face. I said, "Uh, Pops, can you you sit down? He's like, what's wrong? So just sit down. And as I try to say I'm gay, I can't get the word out. So I then stumble into the arranged marriage thing. I said, well, I can't get married. I can't have this arranged marriage. You know, I'm focusing on my career. I'm trying to get his house. And bless him, he's he has an answer for everything, but from a really loving place. So he's like, well, we don't have to, you know, it doesn't matter about the house. Don't worry about that. You know, there's no pressure to do it now. You know, we'll, we'll find the right person for you. And I just kind of kept making excuses over and over, trying to find a way out. But he's so lovely that he just kept coming with, just throwing love back at me and saying, it's fine, you know, you don't have to feel pressured or worried about this or that. And then I eventually, I actually went to the sexual side. So I said, I can't have children. I thought, well, that's an essential part of the family structure, having a family. And I said, well, Mm. I can't have children. And he was very concerned. He said, well, what's happened? Has there been an issue or an accident or something? And then he asked me a series of constant questions about that. You know, are you okay? Have you had an accident? Do you like boys? Do you like girls? And this was a series of questions. And I couldn't believe he asked that in the middle of these questions. So I said, Dad, that question you just asked about three questions ago, the answer is yes. And he looked at me really confused. He went, which question? I asked about 10. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, the one about boys, you said. Yeah, I do. Still couldn't say the word gay. There was about, again, five seconds of silence, which felt like five minutes to me at the time. And he just said, that's okay. He said, I I love you. You're my son. How could I think any different of you? You're my son. I love you. And gave me the biggest hug, which was so beautiful um, and so not what I was expecting. He said that immediately, and then he sort of got very introspective, which... For my father is not usually the case. You usually mm. can read him and you can he's very outwardly presenting. I said, What's wrong? Are you thinking about something? And he said, Oh, I used to me and my some of your friends, we used to make fun of one of the kids um, because his son was gay. And now I realised that my son is gay. So he immediately felt guilty, which is a good thing because he realised he had done something wrong in making fun of another gay child he sounds an amazing man he is he is the best <laughs> him and i are very similar well i am his son i am very much like him i'm very emotional 
Uh, I try to be very caring and all the good things about me are very much from him. So what about your mum? Where was she? She was downstairs. Um, my father and I were a lot closer. I mean, mother and I were, my mum and I were very close, but my father and I were incredibly close. So I, I wanted to tell him first, but my brother, I felt, was the best avenue. And so mm. I then went spoke to my father. His first words were, we can't tell mum, you know how she gets, which <sighs> we both sort of laughed because my mum is... The dramatic side that I have is definitely from my mum. She is very Pakistani anti, very like everything is worse than it is really and very overreacting in both the positive and a negative way. So it gets very excited, but also gets very down and very overly emotional about things. So we said, you know, let's just take some time to process this and we can, we'll, we'll tell her. The next morning, dad's gone to work. I wake up, my mum's crying. And so... I immediately text my dad. I said, did you tell her last night? And he was mm. like, yeah. Well, thanks for telling me, dad. That I really, I needed to prepare for that conversation. I think that's, well, that's a healthy side in a relationship, isn't yeah, it, really? That I they get, do talk to each other. Great for them. Not so great for me on that mm. day. So having to have that with my mum and just, she just couldn't understand it. You've got to, you've got to realise that my parents were born in Pakistan from a, a, a very small village in Pakistan. Which we're talking poverty-stricken village and they managed to get some money together and move to England and the background for them and the and society for them growing up is very different to what it is now they have a totally different set of cultural references and religious references so for her it was very difficult to process and I think one of the things is that Pakistani parents other ethnic minority parents is they don't often have the language or the tools to deal with it my mother doesn't really didn't really understand homosexuality. She still, even now, thinks it's a choice, and that's not born of hatred. It's born of genuine ignorance. It's mm. born because how would she, growing up in the environment that she grew up in, that's not something that's ever talked about, referenced. She has very little education, so how would she have the tools and the language to be able to navigate those conversations with her son? This is something that's very similar from people in different cultures, actually, that um, LGBT people end up educating their parents because they just haven't got the frame of reference. They just haven't been there and had to deal with it or understood it. Absolutely. And my husband and I go back and forth on this. He has less sympathy for them or empathy. And I have more because I know exactly where they've come from. I know their upbringing. I know some of the struggles that they've gone through. And it's hard not to empathize with people that you love. Mm. So I don't hold any hatred for my parents. I empathise and I understand where they're coming from. I just wish there was a little bit more understanding from their side towards me. Well, you just mentioned a very key word there. You said my husband. Spoiler alert. Sorry, so, yeah. yeah, spoiler alert. So uh, <laughs> people who are really paying attention will have noticed there might be a happy ending to this story. There is. It's a happy ending with, a, I guess, a sad lining maybe. I ended up meeting my then my now husband about seven and a half years ago. So after coming out to my dad, after coming out to my mum, the relationship was still very good. Actually, it brought my father and I closer. He got to understand me a little bit more and he felt that the trust I'd shown in him by telling him, he almost reciprocated that. But the problem is we never talked about it because it's still taboo to talk about relationships and sexuality anyway, whether yeah. it's heterosexual or homosexual. Um, but we never talked about it. And every time I tried to bring it up, the conversation was shut down and we moved on. And that was just his way of dealing with things. He's not a person who talks about his feelings and about his worries and insecurities. 
happen. He'll definitely show you that he loves you and he hugs you and he tells you that. But that generation don't really talk about their feelings. I don't. I found and I found that across different cultures. My father-in-law is very much the same. So British born, born in Southampton, but does not talk about his feelings. That generation of men particularly don't. It's just not something. Did he that, come around in the end though? Not really. Hmm. So that's a sad thing. What sort of sent it over the edge was I had met uh, this person, this amazing person, and about four or five years in, I'd proposed or I'd decided to propose. My father and I being sort of best friends, I said to my dad first, I'm thinking about proposing to this person next week. And that was too much for him because it was begun- it was going to become public and it was going to become a thing that now everybody would know. So not just my immediate family, but my extended family, my cousins, the Pakistani Muslim community would know, and he has standing in that community. And previously he hadn't mentioned the fact that his son was gay? No, it would become our secret, and our secret between three people, basically. I told my brother, my mother, and my father, and that was it. And not your sister? No. Mm. Well, my sister was born deaf, and so being deaf in the 80s was very difficult because you didn't have access to the same education as you do now as a deaf Mm. child again it was we have a a really good relationship growing up but for her she'd got married she sort of moved out and not having that same access to education she was almost in a similar position to my mother at a time Mm. where she wouldn't have had the tools or the access or the language to attach to it and so it was just a decision that my father had asked me to do don't tell your sister because She's got her own thing going, she's got her own family to focus on, and it might be too much for her. Does she know now? She does, yeah. Mm. I, well, I put it on Facebook uh, when I got engaged. Oh, okay. <laughs> so she knew that way. Yeah, so that's how she actually found out. And that's a big regret. I wish I had told her earlier, mm. because she deserved that. She's my big sister, and we were very close. And that's definitely a regret that I have, is not mm. speaking to certain people before putting it all out there. And did your mum come round? No, that we haven't spoken in the last two and a bit years, which is really hard. And that's since the engagement announcement. So that was when everybody sort of in our family and friends circle knew. And that's it. I haven't actually spoken to them at all. Well, one conversation with my mother, which was not a great conversation at all. She just couldn't understand. And it was verbally not the greatest conversation. I won't go into detail on it. It made me realise that I don't think she's ever going to understand or come around because she doesn't understand but if she still thinks it's a choice, then she's not as sure. That's it. And again, it's not it's not born of hatred. And this is the difficult thing a lot of people struggle with when I talk about this. They automatically think she's a horrible person. She's not. She's such a loving person. Mm. Just doesn't have the upbringing, the language and the tools to really talk about it. And it's not hatred. It's not driven from a place of, I hate gay people. It's, I just don't understand them. So- and no one's ever tried to explain it. And I've tried... But it's you're over. You're basically battling with hundreds of years of culture, mm. hundreds of years, hundreds of years of religion, and let's be honest, Western society as well. I mean, it's not as if it's a dream here in the UK for gay people everywhere. You know, even the the signals that she gets from the rest of society here, a lot of things are telling her it's not okay to be mm. gay. So it's not just reference points that are Muslim, that are Pakistani. It's British reference points as well. So I get really frustrated with the argument that oh, it's always sort of you know brown and black parents are more homophobic than white parents. I get that. I hear that a lot. The black and brown community are uh, more homophobic than white communities. And I find that really, really hard to take. That's that's not true. Signals you get from 
white British communities are very much homophobic as well. Let's have a look at some of the political discourse. Unfortunately, homophobia crosses all countries and cultures. Um, So did any of your family go to your wedding? They didn't, no. Mm. Um, I had a few of the younger cousins privately sort of say, you know, congratulations, Uh, we're really happy for you. But my father was very sort of paternal figure to them all. So um, it was almost like they picked sides, which was a bit unfortunate. Um, So no, I didn't have any family, but um, it's obviously a little bit cliche, but I have chosen family. I have an unbelievable set of friends who were there at my wedding. So, you know. And you've got an amazing husband. I have. I'm so lucky. Been married six months now. And it is, it's brilliant, you know, finding somebody like that who understands you, who uh, compliments you both personality-wise and just we're just really well made for each other. Um, mm. But, yeah, having my best friends from... I lived in New York for a while, so having my New York family come over, my university people, my London gay queer people come to my wedding, come together and meet each other, that was amazing. And my chosen family um, are fantastic and I'm ridiculously lucky to have them. So you have found your happy ever after. It's not necessarily the happy ever after you wanted. Definitely. My wedding day was so fantastic and it made me realise just how, writing the wedding speech made me realise just how lucky I actually was Mm. and actually how happy I am and was on that day. And yes, it's not perfect, but for somebody who grew up, who was born in the 80s, grew up in the 80s and 90s as a British Pakistani Muslim man who was gay, I didn't think there was ever going to be a way out. And I mean that quite literally. I never believed I'd even live into my 30s. Wow. Um, I have self-harmed in the past. It's something that I just never, ever thought I'd ever achieve any sentiment or level of happiness. And I have done. So that's a quite remarkable, beautiful thing, I think. But through, despite all that, despite what society has told us or told me, despite what cultural, religious upbringing that I've had, I've still found this wonderful person. I still have an amazing chosen family. And I'm happy. Like, I really am. And it's taken me years to get there. Taken a lot of introspection, therapy, antidepressants along the way, heartbreak. But I'm here. And that's quite a remarkable, beautiful thing. So, yeah. I'm so grateful to Assad for telling his story because I do know that it was a very emotional and at times difficult process for him. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. We'd also love to hear from you on Twitter. You can find us there at Come Out Stories. I'm Emma Goldswell, and Coming Out Stories is a What Goes On media production. Next time round, you'll hear from Christine Burns. She's been at the heart of the trans rights movement and was eventually awarded an MBE for her work with ministers crafting the Gender Recognition Bill. She's also got probably the youngest coming out story I've ever heard, coming out at the age of four, telling her own mum that she wanted to grow up to be a woman. It wouldn't be till years later, though, that she really told her parents that she was trans. I got so desperate that I actually um, told my parents. So I got very drunk one night and about three o'clock in the morning I rang my parents and my father answered the phone and I said, Dad, I, you know, I've got to tell you, I want, I want to be a girl, I want to be a woman. I laughed there looking back, he said, uh, he said, you better speak to your mother. <laughs>